this podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on nephrolithiasis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Nephrolithiasis refers to the presence of crystalline stones in the urinary system. The lifetime prevalence is between 5 and 12%, with the probability of having a stone varying according to age, gender, race and geographical location. It's a painful acute condition that can also lead to chronic complications, so it's important that we get it right. To help us, we have on the line Jody Antonelli, who is Assistant Professor at the Department of Urology in the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. And even more importantly, Jody is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on nephrolithiasis. So Jody, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is nephrolithiasis? Um, so nephrolithiasis is basically uh, the technical term for kidney stones, which are hard deposits made of minerals and salts that form inside the kidneys. The most common stones are calcium, primarily composed of calcium oxalate. However, uh, there are other less common types of stones, including calcium phosphate, uric acid. Uh, the prevalence of stones has been on the rise. Uh, in 1994, it was only about 1 in 20 adults that were affected with stones. But uh, the most recent national estimate in the U.S. actually um, uh, estimates that the prevalence of stones is about 1 in 11 U.S. adults. What explains that? increase in prevalence in recent years? Uh, The thought is that uh, some of the comorbidities that are associated with stone disease, uh, including obesity, diabetes, um, GI abnormalities such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and um, surgical procedures such as uh, intestinal resections and gastric bypass may be on the rise. Uh, Other changes demographically, historically men were affected more often than women. However, um, the gender gap is closing. And in fact, in children and teens, the female prevalence is outpacing male prevalence. Okay, thank you. That's, That's interesting. And let's move on to diagnosis. Can you tell us about recent advances in the diagnosis of this condition? Um, probably the the biggest, I guess, pitfall that we've tried to overcome is minimizing radiation exposure for kidney stone patients. Um, you know, there's a study a number of years ago that showed that a patient who had an acute stone episode would be subjected on average to four other imaging studies within the year following that episode, um, and that a fifth of the patients were actually exposed to potentially dangerous levels of radiation. So with this information and other studies, um, the, the focus has really been to attempt to minimize radiation exposure, uh, particularly for recurrent stone formers. So there's been an emphasis to utilize ultrasound where possible and to implement uh, CT protocols that emphasize a lower radiation dose in an effort to you know, maintain a sensitivity and specificity to diagnose the stone, but to really try to minimize radiation. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And besides um, avoiding problems with radiation, I wonder, are there any other uh, pitfalls in diagnosis? Um, one common pitfall is that the, the symptoms of a stone can mimic other processes in the back or the abdomen or, the, or even the genitourinary tract. 
pain from a symptomatic stone is usually related to the location of the stone. So uh, pain in the back when the stone is higher in the kidney or the ureter can be mistaken for musculoskeletal back pain. Um, as the stone moves down in, uh, lower and the pain often uh, moves down into the abdomen can mimic appendicitis or other GI processes. Um, so uh, obtaining imaging and, and ancillary tests to help uh, pinpoint the cause of the stone uh, is, is important. Uh, and again, w with an emphasis toward trying to minimize radiation exposure, um, probably the most important thing for a clinician, if they, uh, feel that a patient may have a stone is to quickly determine whether the patient has any signs or symptoms of a urinary tract infection along with it, because not recognizing that, uh, could potentially be life-threatening for the patient. Okay. Thank you. So I guess it's things like urine microscopy and urine culture and sensitivity. Correct. And uh, looking at uh, the white blood cell count or, uh, you know, leukocytosis in the blood uh, and then just the patient's presentation, temperature and blood pressure and heart rate. Okay, great. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Let's move on to, to management. Can you tell us about recent important advances in the management of patients with nephrolithiasis? Sure. Uh, management of kidney stones is really broken into two categories. There's medical prevention of either growth of existing stones or development of future stones. And then there's surgical management of stones that exist, um, most often trying to remove large or symptomatic stones. The, the uh, mainstay of medical management is a 24-hour urine collection where a patient collects their urine typically at home for 24 hours, and then it's analyzed in a lab for a panel of risk factors. Um, based on the results of that test, then uh, the patient can be given specific dietary recommendations um, and often is, uh, it provides the information necessary to diagnose less common metabolic conditions that sometimes require medication. Um, and uh, the 24-hour the urine is, is still really the, the mainstay of therapy in this uh, arena. I mean, there's been attempts to try to simplify that collection. Um, but right now, uh, that, that's really still the, the main way that the patients are treated uh, in a medical fashion. As for surgical management, um, you know, again, it's most often for symptomatic kidney stones or large kidney stones. There's really uh, three mainstays of surgical treatment that are all uh, driven by the size of the stone and the location. Uh, and basically going from least to most invasive, there's shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy with laser lithotripsy, or a percutaneous nephrolithotomy. And, uh, you know, again, the, the choice of which of these really depends um, primarily on the, the size of the stone and then, and then also on the location. Um, and uh, recent advances have really been driven by technology, obviously, in this regard. So um, ure ureteroscopy, uh, the, the size of the ureteroscopes has really dramatically decreased, uh, which has allowed for access into uh, oftentimes difficult to uh, reach portions of the kidney due to better deflection of the scopes. Um, the laser technology that we use during ureteroscopy has also uh, continued to improve uh, with modifications to kind of the efficacy of how we break up the stones or try to dust the stones. And then for, um, for percutaneous nephrolithotomy, 
there's uh, been a recent push to try to downsize the the instrumentation to decrease the incision size and to decrease the um, entry point into the kidney and also to, to attempt to minimize radiation exposure during procedures by utilizing ultrasound instead of fluoroscopy. Thank you very much. That's really helpful and very comprehensive. Let's review some some of the things that you mentioned. You mentioned a 24-hour urinary collection to diagnose, as far as I could get, metabolic causes. I wonder, could you give me some examples of what those metabolic causes might be? Sure. Um, so often a stone is actually the harbinger or the first you know, indication that a patient may have a metabolic condition. Some of the more common ones that are related to stone formation are distal renal tubular acidosis, primary hyperparathyroidism, uh, osteoporosis, um, and uh, medical management of these conditions with medication or in the case of primary hyperparathyroidism, actually surgery. Uh, is is really what's necessary to dramatically reduce their stone risk and then also reduce the risk of other complications associated with those conditions. Okay, uh, and I guess you probably do a bone profile blood test as, as well to, to help in the diagnosis of some of those conditions also. Yeah, uh, you know, certainly if you have a concern that a patient has, um, you know, an abnormality with uh, calcium, kind of calcium handling and has other risk factors for osteoporosis, uh, determining their bone density is important because it's kind of like two ends of the spectrum. You know, you're trying to uh, preserve their uh, bone health, but also not uh, put them in a situation where they may be increasing their risk for a calcium stone. So the management really does uh, kind of often ride a fine line between trying to balance those two ends of the spectrum. Okay, got it. Thank you. And let's move on to what you said about the choice of procedure. Uh, and I wonder, could you give me some examples of, of scenarios? Say if there was a, a big stone and it was high up in the ureter, what uh, procedure do you think would be most indicated in that type of scenario? Um, so shockwave lithotripsy, um Really, shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, or PCNL um, could potentially be utilized for for large stones high in the ureter. Um, you know, shockwave is where you basically blast the stone from the outside, and then the patient has to pass the pieces. So, shockwave is the success of shockwave is very dependent on the location of the stone because once those fragments are generated, you know, you want it, you want the stone in a location where there's the easiest. Um, uh, access out of the of the system. So shockwave is most successful um, high in the ureter or high in the kidney. It's least successful in the lower pole of the kidney where the fragments, you know, really don't have a lot of impetus to come up kind of against gravity to get out of that lower pole. Um, ureteroscopy, you're a little less limited by the location of the stone. Um, but in that case, you're, you're um, also similar to shockwave limited by the size. Um, Percutaneous nephrolithotomy is the only option of the three where you can employ suction. So if a stone is over two centimeters, some people would say over one and a half centimeters, regardless of location, um, PCNL, is, regardless of location within the kidney anyway, PCNL is really your best choice um, because it's the only way that you have to get in there and utilize suction so you can actually remove the stone most efficiently. Okay, thank you very much. Very clear, very helpful. Let's move on to pitfalls in management. Can you tell us some of the common pitfalls in management? 
Sure. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a urologic uh, subspecialty, endourology is the group that deals with kidney stones. And, you know, there really hasn't been an agreed upon definition for a successful outcome after surgery. Um, the term stone free that you may hear about or read in the literature, it doesn't always truly mean free of any stone fragments on imaging with even the highest sensitivity, like a CT. Um, there's a term clinically insignificant fragments that was taken from shockwave uh, lithotripsy literature to describe small fragments like two to four millimeters um, thought to potentially, you know, not increase the chance for uh, future symptomatic stones. And, um, you know, there's, there's been a, a belief, I think, that nobody, the, the, the endourology uh, community as a whole hasn't completely agreed upon the definition, but there's a thought that leaving these small residual fragments after surgery may act as a nidus for quicker stone formation um, later, a quicker symptomatic stone formation later. So um, I think as a as a uh, kind of an academic community, that they're trying to balance the desire for an optimal clinical outcome, um, you know, for the patient against, uh, the operative time and the cost and the post-op recovery for the patient. Um, there's, there's fortunately a number of, um, multi-center studies across the U S and the world. They're actually trying to, uh, better, better decide what the optimal, uh, measure of success should be after stone surgery. And those studies are ongoing at present. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, and, and when roughly would we expect them to be reported? There's actually already been some, uh, you know, kind of short-term outcomes looking at success in, in um, like the six-week post-op window from a, uh, a large group in the U.S., um, and, you know, their thought is to continue to follow those patients long-term because obviously the, uh, you know, the, w with stones, there's an interest in knowing well, how do patients recover immediately or, uh, shortly after surgery. But then again, you know, what happens with the risk of potential symptomatic stones later? So, uh, there's certainly going to be additional, um, you know, studies, uh, and, 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 uh, analyses of their data coming out even in the next five years. Okay, great, thank you. And another change that happened recently in the BMJ best practice topic on nephrolithiasis related to the drug Febuxostat, which, uh, as, uh, as far as I'm aware, is used in the treatment of, of gout and therefore can affect um, nephrolithiasis as well. Tell us about Febuxostat, if, if you can, and, and also particularly about the recent changes in its uh, indication. Sure. So in the setting of, um, of kidney stones, um, kind of the relation here is that about 10% of patients have stones that are made of uric acid. And um, these stones form primarily due to actually low urine pH. The, the pK of uric acid is about 6. So if you raise the urine pH above 6, um, existing uric acid stones will actually dissolve and future uric acid stones will be halted essentially from, from forming. Um, and, and if you have a patient with uric acid stones, you know, your, your main, um, treatment recommendation for them should actually be to alter their urine pH. And there's medications that you can give that will alkalinize the urine or raise the urine pH, such as potassium citrate or sodium bicarbonate. Um, now, uh, Febuoxtat, um, 
works to actually lower the absolute concentration of uric acid. And that's most beneficial for patients that actually form calcium kidney stones. But on the 24-hour urine analysis, they have elevated levels of uric acid. And uh, you can attempt to lower uric acid through dietary changes, primarily limiting animal protein intake. But for patients who continue to form calcium stones and have high urine uric acid levels, uh, medications uh, such as this that can lower the absolute concentration are indicated. Um, so it's actually a relatively small group of patients that you're going to utilize this medication in for the treatment of kidney stones. Um, but um, there's a concern recently about an increased risk of uh, heart-related death compared to another medication used in this class called allopurinol. So in February of 2019, the FDA actually issued a black, black box warning, uh, concluding there was an increased risk of death uh, compared to other gout medications, and uh, that their conclusion was, was based on the results of safety clinical trials that found an increased risk of heart-related death and death from all causes uh, with uh, Febuoxdat. And so I'm, I'm guess it's best avoided in patients with um, existing ischemic heart disease or patients with risk factors for ischemic heart disease, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, and, and I think that, uh, you know, if, if you have other alternatives for, um, you know, uric acid lowering medications, uh, such as allopurinol, I would, uh, you know, recommend that you likely would choose those over this. Okay, great, thank you. Last question is a question about questions. Um, what common questions do you get asked about nephrolytosis by generalist physicians or uh, physicians working in primary care? Um, you know, often people will ask um, if I've had a stone before, you know, what's the likelihood that I'm going to have another one? Um, the, there, there's been, um, there are older studies, but studies that looked at patients who underwent, uh, surgery for kidney stones and then subsequently had imaging, primarily just plain x-ray or, uh, imaging. And, um, those studies have shown that, uh, there's as high as a 50% chance of having another stone within five years of the first. Um, and that's, you know, without any attempt at, uh, diagnosing a, a metabolic cause or attempting to, to manage, uh, a metabolic cause, uh, or a dietary cause for the stones. So, um, you know, certainly in patients who've had more than one stone, I think there's a, a significant benefit to, uh, embarking on a metabolic evaluation with a 24 hour urine and, uh, you know, attempting to at least give patients some dietary recommendations and potentially, uh, you know, have the opportunity to diagnose uh, a metabolic condition that, if treated appropriately, can really dramatically reduce their chance for future stones. Okay, thank you very much, Jody, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, Click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other important diseases. Thank you once again.